following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. If you will turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 9. But uh, this evening we're going to look around at several portions of Scripture, so keep your Bibles handy. And tonight we are going to look at the faith of Abraham and lay some foundational work for us to come back and look at these verses again and deal more specifically with what Paul is writing to the Galatians. This was uh, in part referenced in this morning's sermon, but if you were to ask and pollsters have done so, nearly 90% of the American population says they have faith. Now that may surprise you, but there's a really important question to ask as a follow-up. Faith in what? John Lennon once responded to this question by saying, I believe in everything until it's disproved. So I believe in fairies, the myths, dragons, it all exists, even if it's in your mind. Who's to say that dreams and nightmares aren't as real as the here and now? So he has a faith in everything until it's proven that it's not worth having any faith in at all. Mahatma Gandhi advocated for a faith in humanity. He said, you must not lose faith in humanity. Humanity is like an ocean. If a few drops of the ocean are dirty, the ocean does not become dirty. The American poet and novelist Sylvia Plath seemed to follow George Michael's famous advice that you just got to have faith. She once wrote, I talk to God, but the sky is empty. The Buddha taught man to doubt everything and to find your own light. So faith was whatever you discovered in yourself. Albert Einstein said, I believe in intuitions and inspirations. I sometimes feel that I'm right. I do not know that I am. So faith in a feeling. Something like saying, go with your gut or follow your heart. In all of her infinite wisdom, the great Oprah Winfrey says, just a little bit of faith can get you through so that you eventually create what you believe. That's faith in faith. I believe in that which I have faith in, therefore it is what I want it to be. I once had a family member tell me that she didn't care what her children had faith in, but simply that they had faith in something. She wasn't too fond of me asking if a satanic cult was on her list of things they could have faith in. Now in a culture like ours, it's not uncommon to hear someone say that all of these ideas, everything I just mentioned, all of them are valid because after all, we each create our own truth. So you can have faith in the sky, in a rock, in your friend, in your child, in yourself, in your politicians or policymakers, in the dollar or in faith itself, and all of these are okay as long as they work for you. A vast majority of that 90% of Americans who say they have faith would say they have faith in God. But what God would that be? Who is he? What is he like? Muslims, Jews, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Baha'i, Hindu, animists, Rastafarianism, you name it. 
They probably believe in God, but the problem is the God they believe in is very different from the God that we believe in. But ha- has to be one of the most important questions that we can ask of ourselves or anyone else in this life because it changes everything. What do you have faith in? Or perhaps I should ask, in whom do you have faith? I hope you can answer that question honestly, and your answer may not be my answer, but I hope to show you that it should be the same answer. But nevertheless, the object of our faith is critical. What or whom I believe in will dictate all of the details of the life I live, or I don't really believe in that person or that thing. So as we consider faith, I want to focus narrowly on the faith of this man that we know very well from the scriptures named Abram or Abraham. Now interestingly, Christians, Jews, and Muslims alike all claim Abraham as one of the most significant figures of their faith. But I want us to see this evening that the Bible really shows that Abraham's faith was very specific And for the Jew or the Muslim to claim to have the same faith as Abraham is to completely misunderstand the object of Abraham's faith altogether. In fact, I believe that the Jews and Muslims, when thinking about Abraham, make the same exact mistake that many Christians do. Namely, to simply settle that Abraham believed in God. That's not entirely incorrect, of course, for the Christian to say, but it's not the whole picture. When someone tells me they believe in God, I've gotten into the habit of saying, explain him to me. Who is he? What is he like? So we're gonna ask the Bible that question as we think of this great man of God because Paul is shifting his argument a bit here in Galatians 3 to use Abraham as an example for a larger point he's making about what it is that saves us. We're actually going to spend, uh, as I mentioned, two sermons here, and so uh, we're, we're just laying the foundation this evening with a focus on Abraham. So we're going to f- start by reading Paul's argument here in chapter 3, and I want to start in verse 1 just so we can pick up the context here. So Galatians 3, beginning in verse 1. O oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. 
Now, Paul is assuming in his argument that his readers are familiar with the life and faith of Abraham. So we need to take our time and look at this very thing because much of chapters three and four of Galatians are consumed with talk about Abraham. Paul writes in verse six that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And this is his main point in the entire section. Paul is very fond of Genesis 15. He deals with this in the book of Romans as well. Uh, Romans chapter four. So Galatians chapter three and verse six, as well as Romans chapter four and verse three are quoting Genesis 15, six. So That being said, let's turn over in our Bibles to Genesis 15, and we're going to spend our time working through several of those verses to give us the context of what Paul is writing here. Now, as you are likely familiar, Abraham, initially known as Abram, was the son of Terah and the husband of Sarah. He was from the land of Ur, and God called Abraham to leave his native country for the land that he would show him. And when Abraham arrived in Canaan, God promised to give the land to him and to his descendants who would become the nation of Israel. The Lord promised that the whole world would be blessed through Abraham and his descendants. And then Abraham, you'll recall, faced the ultimate test of faith when God commanded him to sacrifice his son Isaac upon the mountain. But because Abraham was willing to do so, God once again promised to bless him and to multiply his offspring. You recall God spared Isaac from death and he provided a substitute sacrifice, which was a clear foreshadowing of the substitutionary death of Christ on our behalf. So we get to Genesis 15, where God makes the first two covenant, the, the first of two covenantal arrangements with Abraham. We'll actually deal with the Abrahamic covenant as we get further on in the letter to the Galatians. But today, I want us to see very specific um, how in chapter 15 it is written to show us exactly who it is that Abraham believes in. Now, I assume that most of us are familiar with this particular text, but I think we often have an underlying assumption about what the text is saying that doesn't get to the heart of what I believe it actually means. So let's first read Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6, and then we'll break the text down a bit more. And we're going to look at several other passages to help us as well. Genesis 15, beginning in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it it to him as righteousness. Now, verse one again says, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now, I want us to think about that for just a minute. 
The most common understanding of this is that Abram heard God's voice in a vision. And I addressed this briefly in Sunday school a few weeks ago. But when someone has a vision, and it is also said that what is happening here is that he came to him. The idea isn't generally that it was something that was happening with the ears, something he heard, but rather something that happened with his eyes. Back in Genesis 12 and verse 7, the text says, Then the Lord appeared to Abram. Well, we all know from our children's catechism that no man has ever seen God. God does not have a body like man, and yet we read here that God appears to Abram. How could that be? I also want you to notice how in verse 1 it is written, The word of the Lord came to Abram. Not the words of the Lord, but the word, singular. Now perhaps you're picking up where I'm going with this. Where else do we get that language? I'm certain most of us are familiar with the language that we see in the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. Now we know, of course, that John was writing about the Lord Jesus, So John was pointing out that prior to the incarnation, the word was both equal to God, he was God, and so also distinct, he was with God. So as far as Jesus is concerned, John helps us to understand both the godness of Jesus while also understanding him to be a distinct person of the Trinity. And this really strikes at the heart of our understanding of the Trinity. God is one, and yet God is three persons, or our confession says subsistences. But where does John's language come from? Where does he get this idea to call Jesus the Word in the Gospel of John? Have you ever thought about that? I want to argue that this language is what comes directly from the Old Testament in numerous locations, particularly in the prophets. Now, I don't want to belabor the point too long, but I do think at least two other examples will be helpful for us. So first, let's consider the call of the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 1, Jeremiah says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, So the word of the Lord came came to him, same language as used to describe Abraham's experience, but here more explicitly, Jeremiah says that the word said something to him, right? The word of the Lord came to me saying, that's really significant. The word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations, and then I said, ah, Lord God, Behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth, but the Lord said to me. You see that? He's calling the word of the Lord by name now, Lord. Do not say, I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Okay, now hold on to your hats. Here's the big surprise. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched his mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Now, perhaps you were skeptical of what I was saying about the word of the Lord in Genesis 15, but now there's no denying it, right? He puts out his hand and touches Jeremiah's mouth. 
This isn't figurative language. There's no qualifying words in there. This is an actual experience that Jeremiah had with the word of the Lord who came to him and spoke to him and touched him. This is more than a purely auditory experience in the same way that we've seen with Abraham. Now, one more example And if you want to turn there, you can. You don't have to. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 3. And this is the call of Samuel. You're probably, again, you're probably familiar with this passage, but perhaps you've missed a few of the small details. Remember, it's important as you read your Bible to remember, nothing is in the Bible by accident. All of the little details matter, and they tell us a whole lot about what's going on. And this is one of those examples of how the details matter. So let's look at this, 1 Samuel chapter 3. It says, now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Now that in itself should strike you as interesting, the connection between the word of the Lord and again, the word vision that we see. Now take note of what's next because it was, if this was simply an auditory experience, the, the next part of 1 Samuel 3 would be completely unnecessary information. But it says, at that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. Now, why does Eli's eyesight matter? The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel and said, and he said, here I am, and ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. And so he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel, And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, go lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now, again, here's the the big surprise. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hear it will tingle. Then verse 21, and the Lord appeared again at Shiloh for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So let's think about this. Notice this link between the word of the Lord and visions, seeing something, right? This is the same thing we notice again in Genesis 15. Now again, we pointed out Eli is blind and there's really no other reason than what I'm putting forward that his blindness would ever even be mentioned in this text. It wouldn't matter otherwise. But then the text says three times that the Lord called out to Samuel, but Samuel didn't recognize the voice because the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Now, if you don't know the word of the Lord, 
What does that mean? What do we, how do we think about that in a New Testament context? If you don't know the word of the Lord, you don't know the Lord. Now, at some point, the text tells us in verse 10 that the Lord came and stood in front of Samuel. Finally, Samuel saw the word of the Lord, but it took some time for Eli to figure it out. Why? And then we see later on that the Lord appeared again to Samuel and revealed himself to Samuel by the word of the Lord. But Eli couldn't figure it out because why? He couldn't see. Now, maybe this all seems odd to you, and that's okay. I hope it's starting to come together a bit more. But my whole point here is to bring us back to Abraham's experience and explain what Paul means in Galatians when he quotes Genesis 15:6, saying that Abraham believed God. There was an object to Abraham's faith, not just an idea and not just a promise. And in fact, if you look at Genesis 12, 7 and 17, 1 and 18, 1, you will see that Yahweh appeared to Abraham in those places as well. And I'm saying that we need to understand these instances to be physical appearances of the pre-incarnate Christ, otherwise known as the word of the Lord, or in some places in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord. Now that may be hard for some of us because it challenges us to think supernaturally. But I will remind you that we also affirm that Jesus was born of a virgin and was raised from the dead. So the fact that he appeared in the form of an angel or had some temporary physical properties without taking on flesh yet is not so strange, is it? And as we, as we think about these things, I do, I do hope in, in thinking in these categories, as you read your Old Testament, you will see more of Christ in the Old Testament. Right, I think it was Spurgeon who said, I, I don't fear that a man would see too much of Christ in the Old Testament, but that he would only see him more and more. And that's exactly what we want to do. And so when the Old Testament specifically talks about seeing God, We have to remember that God, when we speak of him in the singular God that he is, he has no body. He is a spirit. He has not a body like man. However, the second person of the Trinity, the word of God, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is God's physical presence among men. I can give you numerous examples of where we see this in the Old Testament and should just fill our hearts with overwhelming joy and amazement because Jesus is not just in the Old Testament through types and shadows and promises. He certainly is there in those things, but that's not all. He is actually in the Old Testament physically and personally interacting with the people of God in a real physical way. Have you ever thought about that? Abram is talking to a man Look again at Genesis 15. Notice we see in verse five, and he brought him outside. Who is he? Verse four tells us the word of the Lord that came to him. There is a real physical being here, not human in flesh, that comes at Jesus's birth, but this is the second person of the Trinity. And it explains how later in chapter 15 that he was able to walk through the severed animal carcasses, remember? These objects went through the carcasses. Well, they didn't just float through, right? Abram, what was Abraham doing? He was asleep. And so these things passed through the carcasses to cut the covenant with God. So Abram saw the Lord. 
Abram talked to the Lord. Abraham had a relationship with the Lord. And we could look at numerous examples again in the Old Testament of others to whom the word of the Lord came and we could say the same of them. They knew the word of the Lord and they put their faith not just in a promise of what was to come but in the second person of the Trinity himself. Now, no doubt they were trusting in and believing in the promises of God and that they would be fulfilled just like you and I do. They knew there was some kind of fulfillment that was yet to happen. They didn't quite understand what that would be. They knew there would be a deliverance from sin and bondage, but they didn't quite grasp all of the how. We have the advantage of reading the story after it's all happened. So they certainly did believe in a promise, but the very thing that Paul is pointing out in Romans 4 and here in Galatians 3 is that Abraham believed in an actual object of faith who is, we can identify now, Christ himself, not just an idea and not just a promise of Christ. One Old Testament scholar writes, the deity who would one day become a human being and whose body would be from the line of Abraham was speaking to Abraham in physical form before even the first of Abraham's children had been conceived. That's an amazing reality, isn't it? What an incredible thought. So now having all this in mind, let's Let's look at a few of the specifics of Genesis 15 and we can understand more of the substance of Abraham's faith. Again, we saw in verse one that the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision and then the first thing we see, the word of the Lord said to Abram, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. This is the Lord calling Abram to believe in him, to trust him. Abram, you have nothing to fear. You can trust in me. I will provide for your every need. That's what he's telling him. And no doubt at this point, Abram and Sarah, his wife, were discouraged. They had no children. Her womb was barren. Certainly by now, because of her age, they assumed that they wouldn't have a child together. It just didn't make sense. And so now we see the Lord doing what he does for his people when we're discouraged, when we're down, when we're hurt, when we're suffering, the Lord is there. The Lord shows up. He is our shield and he calls on us to trust him. It's one of the reasons we gather for worship. We come together to meet the Lord as we meet with one another. And in our hour together, we are once again reminded of his goodness, of his kindness, of his love and mercy and grace and the strength and the protection and the nearness of the Lord Jesus Christ to each of us who has trusted in him. And when we call out and say, like uh, like Samuel, here I am, Lord, He comes, as it were, to stand next to us and to hear us in our prayers and to meet our needs. And in him, our reward is very great because he is our reward. Our promised reward is the Lord himself. And if you've trusted in the word of the Lord, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, and when life deals you suffering or trials, where is your strength? In what or in whom do you find hope? The Lord says, hope in me, rest in me, find strength in me, know that I am your only hope. And friends, Jesus is the only way that we can move through the grave into everlasting life. 
And apart from Christ, we have no assurance of anything other than everlasting judgment and torment because of our unwillingness to acknowledge Jesus as who he is, the great king and savior and Lord of all the universe. And so the question that the Lord Jesus asks of each of us, will you trust me? Will you depend on me and all that I promise? Well, now after the word of the Lord tells Abram that he is his shield and his reward, Abram poses a question, a fair question. He says, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Now this question from Abram is based upon a promise that the Lord gives to him way back in Genesis chapter 12, that from him would come the seed of a nation. But Abram was an old guy. The nice Bible way of saying this is that he was advanced in years. I know some of you are going to start saying that about yourselves. I'm advanced in years. So Abram says in verse three, behold, You have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Now, the problem that he's bringing up is that the best he has to take overall, that uh, as a, a, uh, excuse me, the problem that he's bringing up is that the best he has to take overall that he has is a foreigner, right? In other words, I don't have a son to whom I can leave all that I have, It's going somewhere else. And and then in verse four, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. In other words, you are still yet having a son. He's coming. Just hold on. And then what happens in verse five? And he brought him outside The word of the Lord brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. Now Abram at this point, probably his late 80s, around the time of all of this happening, and he hears the promise and would certainly be astonished by it, right? A son from me? It couldn't be. I'm advanced in years and so is my wife. How could it ever be so? But the promise is critical because it's a promise through which an entire nation would be born and from which the Lord to whom Abram was now speaking would become flesh and dwell among his people that he might live a perfect law-fulfilling life and die a sinner's death to be raised from the dead, thus atoning for every sin of those who put their trust in him alone. And so what was Abram's promise? the same thing that every one of us is called to. And he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is justification by faith alone. God has always saved people in the same way. From the beginning of time until now, we have always been justified by our faith and more important than understanding simply justification by faith is understanding the object of our faith. Justification by faith in Christ alone, in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, or we could say in the word of the Lord. Notice it doesn't say he believed God's promise or that he believed what God said. It says he believed the Lord. If I wrote you a check for $1,000 right now, which I'm not going to do, I'm sorry, but if I did, 
you're not putting your trust in that check, are you? You're trusting that what that check represents is going to pan out, right? In other words, you trust in the reality of actual dollars being put into your bank account, not in the piece of paper that I hand you with my signature on it, right? If you, if you don't think that's true, then try to deposit a check from an empty account and you'll see the value of that piece of paper in your hand. So you see, you don't just have faith in a promise or something you hope in, you have faith in an actual thing. And in the same way, Abram has faith in an actual object, who is Jesus himself. And when we believe God's promises, what are we saying? We're saying we believe they're true. We believe that they will work out in the way that God says they will work out. But our faith is not simply in a promise. Our faith is in an object. Our trust has an object of faith. And in this case, the, and, and ultimately our saving faith is not just in God. We don't just say God generically by name, but the word of the Lord. Adonia Yahweh, Jesus Christ. And this is what I want us to see because when Paul quotes verse six of Genesis 15 in his letter to the Galatians, he's telling them that Abraham had faith in who we know as the Lord Jesus Christ the same Jesus Christ the Galatians had faith in, but were now waffling from. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Now again, Abraham didn't know all the details. He didn't know how it would pan out or what it would look like, but all the more of an indictment on those who would walk away, that they knew the details far more than Abraham, but he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. It wasn't because of anything that Abraham did that he was counted righteous. It wasn't because he was greater or more spiritual or more holy or more faithful. He was kind of a rascal a lot of times. We'll look at this more next time, but it was because he believed in the Lord. His faith is in Jesus Christ, who, because he has proven himself perfectly trustworthy, can promise all that he promises to Abram and all that he promises to you and I, and we can trust that it will come to pass. If you are a Christian, your object of faith is in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It always will be, it always has been as a true Christian. Additionally, your faith is in the validity of the work that was done on your behalf. Faith says Christ did this for me. He died for me. He was raised to life for me. Faith lays hold of that good news. It accepts it. It receives it. And it changes our hearts. It transforms us. It does not eliminate sin, but... It causes a person to hate sin, to want to destroy sin, to want to eliminate sin, not only because it hurts us, but because God hates it and we want to honor God and not do what he hates. And so I hope you'll consider this question this evening. The most important question we could ask of anyone in the world, have you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as the object of your faith? Have you accepted that this is good news for you? Are you living on your parents' faith? Are you living on the church's faith? Are you living on your pastor's faith? Do you have faith in faith? None of those will do. Do you realize that Christ came to Abram, protected him from harm, won great battles for him, promises him a seed, and delivers on that promise when he's 
90 years of age? Do you realize that Christ in the flesh is the fulfillment of that promise? Do you know that he did this all so that you might have salvation rather than condemnation, eternal life rather than perishing in sin and death? And do you desire in your heart of hearts to obey him? Are you grieved by ongoing sin in your life? Or do you not think you really have all that much anymore? Is your life one of repentance and humility or simply one that wants everyone and everything to repent and bow down before your own righteous majesty? Answer these questions and you'll know whether or not you are in the Christian faith or simply have a borrowed faith or if you have faith in faith that will get you nowhere and will buy you nothing. Trust in Christ alone. And Abraham is one we can look to as a true example. And our great God will count that faith as righteousness. For that is what the scriptures say. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that we are not left to have faith in faith. We're certainly thankful that we're not left to have faith in humanity. We're thankful that we are not left to have faith in ourselves or faith in the moon and the stars and the sky and the rocks on the ground, but that we have a true object of faith who is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We thank you that we can have a true faith in the word of the Lord who gave himself as a ransom for many. And as we hold to him and all the promises that come in your word because of what Christ has accomplished, we pray that you help us to see him more and more in your word and in the work of our own lives. We pray, God, that as we contemplate uh, the great, wonderful, beautiful, amazing story of the Bible, and as we see Christ all over the pages of Scripture, that we would simply be brought to much thanksgiving and rejoicing because we serve a great God who has woven all of this story together from beginning to end in a way that could never even be conceived of in the mind and heart of a man. Lord, that you have woven the story of humanity together to bring us to a place of redemption and to bring us all the way to the new heavens and the new earth that we might rejoice and feast together forever and ever. And I pray, Lord, that everyone in this room tonight will be at that great heavenly banquet. I pray that you would be pleased, O God, for any here tonight who do not know Christ, that you would point them to the object of true faith who is Christ himself. May you awaken their hearts to new life, raise them up from the dead, that they might walk in the newness of life. And for all of us who are in Christ, Lord, I pray that you would give us a greater assurance that our God is for us, that as we trust in you, as we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can know because we've seen it time and time again in the scriptures and we know it to be true in our own lives that all of your promises are true and are fulfilled for us. And so we pray, Lord, as we go out into the world for the week ahead, that we would walk faithfully and stand firmly upon the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And we pray you would do all of this in his name for his sake and glory. Amen. 
We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.